0: The sponsor for the Shepherd's Crook podcast for the month of May is my friends over at Banner of Truth Trust. The Banner of Truth Trust is a Christian organization which publishes books, organizes conferences, and publishes a monthly magazine. Their objective is the promotion, advancement, and dissemination of better knowledge and understanding of the history and the doctrines of the true biblical Christian faith. They seek to inform, encourage, strengthen, and equip ordinary Christians and have particular concern for ministers and pastors and those training for the ministry. While the banner is most well-known for the promotion of the best Christian literature from the past and the present, men in the ministry should know about their ministers' conference, one held in Pennsylvania at the end of May and the other near L.A. in the middle of October. The banner hosts simple conferences focused on the preaching of the Word, prayer, fellowship, and, of course, heavenly, discounted Banner of Truth Trust books. Learn more about their books and conferences at thebanneroftruth.org. Welcome to the Shepherd's Crook podcast. The Shepherd's Crook exists to provide care, counsel, and resources for pastors. You can get more information at theshepherdscrook.co. My name is Jared Sparks, and I'm a pastor coming alongside other pastors, reminding them of the chief pastor. Well, welcome to the Shepherd's Crook podcast. This is a bonus episode. We have an interview today with Dr. Tom Askell down in in florida and uh tom thanks so much for making the time and and jumping on the show with us
1: well i'm glad to be a part of it thanks for the invitation
0: yeah well we pray and uh we'll get in we'll get into the interview okay. father we uh, we're so thankful for your grace we're thankful for your mercy that's upon us again right now and i thank you for the work that you've done through dr askell and the lives that you've impacted and just a privilege to be able to talk to him today about life and ministry and I just ask that you would lead this discussion. I pray you'd put a huge spotlight on Jesus. Holy Spirit, just lead and I trust that you're going to. For all the listeners out there, God, I pray that they would be encouraged and challenged and uh, Holy Spirit, I just again ask you to work and I know that you will. It's in uh, the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, for those who, I know majority of my listeners will be familiar with you, Dr. Askel, but for those who may not be familiar with you, and you kind of, Tell us a little bit about yourself, your family, and where you pastor, and even throw some things in there if you would about Founders Ministry ministries. Yeah,
1: well, thanks. I uh, grew up in Beaumont, Texas, and um, went to Texas A&M University, and after that to Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, where I did an MDiv and a Ph.D. I'm the youngest of six kids, and grew up with a godly mother and uh, a father who had a lot of issues. But by God's grace, I believe, came to Christ before he died uh, late in life, which Mm -hmm. we're all grateful for. All six of uh, the siblings are Christians. One is with the Lord already, and um, it was just a a kindness of God that we're all believers and have great fellowship in Christ together. Though I'm stuck way down here in South Florida, so I don't get to see them uh, very often, but uh, we... We are close and we're grateful for the way God's worked in our lives. I have been a pastor for over 40 years, just clocked 40 years on Reformation Day last year. Wow! congrats. And, yeah, Thanks, and almost 33 of those years have been here in Southwest Florida, in Cape Coral at Grace Baptist Church. So I came here in 1986 while I was finishing up my uh, PhD work. I was working on a dissertation, or began to work on it after I got here. I'm married to Donna. We'll be married 39 years in just a couple of days.
0: Wow. We have,
1: yeah, we got six kids. Uh, One of them lives in Texas. She's a teacher there and is, um, went back to Texas to do a a master's at A&M at the Bush School and stayed there to teach. And I think she's getting ready to transition into working for a church, a church that she loves in College Station, has asked her to come on board on staff, and I think she's gonna do that. Wonderful. So that's exciting for her. Uh, she's not married, and my youngest daughter, who is 21, lives with us, Hannah, and she uh, works for founders part-time, works at a children's hospital, and is a, has her own photography business, so she stays busy as well. And then the other four are married. I've got one son, five daughters, And we have nine grandchildren with one on the way next month, Lord willing. So they all live right here. All the grandkids are with us and all the children and uh, spouses are faithful in the church I serve. So Mm -hmm. it's an incredible blessing, one that we don't want to take for granted. And we know that it's uh, probably not going to be this way, you know, for too many more years. But we're enjoying every moment that we can right now, having so many of our kids and all of our grandkids close.
0: That's so wonderful, and I've heard uh, I've heard grandparent life is really boring and uh, and and really hard and, and yeah that's uh, <laughs> no, wonderful it's just great
1: I you know Tom Nettles is a good friend of mine and uh, he and I were talking about it right after I had my first and of course he had uh, grandkids long before me. And he said, you know, I think there's something that actually happens to your brain. So I think there's actually some kind of chemical reaction. And, okay. and I don't deny that now. If it's not, it's something that probably no chemical reaction could uh, compare to because yeah. it's wonderful. Uh, you asked me to mention something about Founders, and that's yeah. an organization that I was involved in, in starting back in 1982. And so we've been going since 83 when we had our first Founders Conference. And that began simply as a pastor's conference and leadership Church Leadership Conference and it's grown through the years. We have a very active website, and we now do theological training online in conjunction with several seminaries, so you can get up to 21 hours of credit at major seminaries and uh, do it through Founders at a fraction of the cost and do it somewhat uh, in a more um, uh, a schedule that can suit your life better than picking up and moving somewhere else. Uh, we also publish books, and we have a quarterly journal. We publish articles online regularly. We have Bible studies that we publish. And about seven or eight months ago, we started a podcast. Yeah. So my associate pastor here, Jared Longshore, and I do the Sword and the Trial podcast, which just, I don't know, a month or two ago, we started doing video in addition to um, just the audio podcast. So I had to start wearing something other than cut off some flip-flops. To, uh,
0: <laughs> <to do laughs> that Florida podcast. life. It, that Florida life. That's guy, right. Yeah. That's right. Right. Yeah, the studio looks great. It seems like Founders, because I've been following Founders for several years, but it seems like things have even, you know, grown. What it what it seems to be exponentially, even the last couple of years. I don't know if that's actually the case, but it seems like some some positive movements are happening, and it just seems like some exciting things.
1: Yeah, well, that is the case, and I'm grateful for that. And that's uh, under God's kindness. That's Jared Longshore's impact. Uh, on the ministry, he came on board with us and some other younger uh, board members came on at the same time. They've all been very good in helping us think through just this next-generational kind of uh, way to connect and impact. And so God's used Jared tremendously, along with some other young adults, to yes. here in our church, to help us think about how we can do more with what we have. What uh, We've had people come in and look at us and say, man, you guys have tons and tons of content but nobody knows where it is or how to access it. So we're trying to do better at that and make that more accessible.
0: Gotcha. Tell you what, those those guys named Jared—they're just—they're just good guys. You know? Tell you what. <laughs> yeah,
1: you you guys know what's going on and know how to
0: get things going. Hey, and we spell it the biblical way as well: J-A-R-E-D. None of those weird, wonky ways, you know.
1: I know. Yeah, I'm grateful
0: for that. <laughs> yeah. So uh, a lot of my listeners have some of them have been in ministry for several years, even decades, but many of them are seminarians or just feeling a call, internal call into ministry. And I always ask, like to ask people when I'm interviewing them, could, if they could kind of flesh out a little bit about what that internal call. Looked like, and then what that external process looked like for them. So, if you would, I'd love to hear about your calling into ministry, and yeah. then and then what that process into you know getting into ministry and pastoral work looked like.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I I think the Lord saved me when I was a boy, and you know, there's some confusion in my mind that I've had just to come to terms with and live with, uh, because the church where I grew up was you know, a church that loved the Bible, and uh, but we we weren't real theologically uh, oriented. And so there are questions that a uh, more rigorous theological orientation would have helped me answer that I just didn't get answered mm-hmm. know, early enough time. But anyway, I, I've settled that in my own heart and mind. I think the Lord saved me when I was probably eight or nine years old. And then when I was 15 years old, I um, just was not walking faithfully with Christ. It was involved in just things I should not have been involved in as a young person, but I was very active in the church and through a series of, of Uh, meetings, special preaching meetings, God dealt with me deeply. And in the midst of that, I had this overwhelming sense that he was calling me to be a preacher or a pastor. And that happened with my brother, who's four years older than me. He's also a pastor still today in in Oklahoma. So within like two or three days of each other. And uh, it was a, a difficult time for me because I had been very cynical toward the church and toward pastors particularly. I um, had an, one associate pastor that I really trusted and, and invested in me quite a bit, and, and he had uh, been skeptical of pastors as well, so I think I, I got some of his and then took it way beyond what he ever had. Mm. So I felt like God was playing a cruel joke on me.
0: Like
1: <laughs> I didn't like pastors, and here he was calling me to be one. And it created a real existential difficulty, crisis for me, because um, I had this overwhelming sense, and then people in the church confirmed that, and the... the Pastors asked me if I would preach, and so I did that over the course of a few months later. And
0: then the church licensed me to preach. Okay. And um, so that was a, you know, I was a pretty
1: significant event that the church would take that stand. It's more significant than what I knew at the moment. But it, what it did is it opened doors for me to begin to preach in different places as a 16-year-old, 17-year-old. Wow. Yeah, which
0: is kind of stupid. Back, <laughs> it's know? it's unique. It doesn't happen as much anymore. I've heard stories, kind of with a little bit, kind of your generation. I think are you in your sixties, Doctor Askelin? I am. I'm sixty two. Yeah. And and it seems like that boomer. So you're on the younger end of the boomers. It seems like there was a lot of you guys that were preaching when you were in their in your teens, uh, yeah, and early twenties. And maybe there was a big need for pastors at that time or something. But or but just not as much wisdom around. There we <laughs> like go. It. Or maybe that. But yeah. things worked out. Yeah. Things seem to work out. They you.
1: did, and yeah, that's, again, just got sovereignty and kindness in it all. But anyhow, I did that, so I, I got a scholarship to Texas a and M. I I wanted to go there. I actually thought I probably should go to a Christian Bible college or something like that, so I looked at Washitall Baptist in, Oklahoma, in uh, Arkansas, looked at Baylor a little bit. Uh, but then rather than going to those Baptist schools, decided to go to a Christian university, went to Texas A&M, and uh, was able to uh, major in sociology and then minor in psychology there thinking that if I become a sociologist, that's close enough to being a pastor, that God would be satisfied with that, and I could help people through the social sciences. But my senior year at A&M, I had a contract, actually, on my desk in my dorm room to go to work for a um, a juvenile counseling service. that uh, They specialized in stress backpacking, where you take... uh, basically juvenile delinquents who couldn't be helped in other normal ways out into the wilderness and just spent weeks out there where they were mm. cut off from every other support and uh, through that try to reach them and help them. And I was ready to sign that contract when a little church in, in the in college station had asked me to come preach to fill in. Their pastor had gone, had left. And after the third Sunday of doing this, they said, man, we want you to be our pastor. Wow. Well. And I thought, that's bizarre. You know, I just was not on my radar. I thought I had my life mapped out. And um, on, on Halloween, Reformation Day, I didn't know it was Reformation Day back then, in uh, 1978, uh, God confirmed that that's what I should do. So I agreed well, that day to be their pastor. And that's how I got into it. So the, the external call was confirmed through my home church with a licensing process. Okay when Rock Prairie Baptist Church of College Station asked me to be their pastor um, that that was kind of a further sense of okay this is what God has for me
0: to do yeah yeah that's great. It is interesting to hear different people talk about that internal external process and you know it, it does seem a little bit different from story to story but there's always a, a good and healthy uh, and, and right emphasis on both that internal and external you know, process, yeah, which I, has to I, be there, has to be there. I wish
1: I had a better understanding of it at the time. I didn't. Yep. But, you know, looking back, I can see how God did it, and I'm grateful for that. Uh, but, yeah, definitely, man, he, he did this in a way that made it pretty clear to me this is what I was supposed to be doing.
0: That's good. Okay, well, you're on the tail end of raising children in the home anyways. Your last daughter, you yeah. said, is still at home. My wife and I are on the front end. We have two little boys. We've got a four-year-old and a one-year-old. And they are incredible. I love them, and uh, it's just so much fun being a dad, and and my wife just watching her being a mother. It's just incredible. And uh, you know James Dobson in his book, raising a strong-willed child. He said if you get a strong-willed child first, your second is going to be the compliant one. And I just have to say he is dead wrong about that. Uh, (laughs) We have. Two strong-willed boys, and strong-willed mama and a strong-willed dad. And uh, I'm really, really loving, though, being able to just to be just a part of our family. It's just so wonderful. And we've tried to make some decisions on the front end that protect our family and um, at the time that we have together doing a family day. And I've tried to learn from the mistakes of some of the pastors that I've worked with before. I had a pastor sit down with me, Dr. Askell, and he said, "I, in all my life, I didn't have. I don't have one memory of playing with my children in the yard. He said I left at six in the morning every morning, and I got back at nine p.m. every night. And he said that that's the one thing he would have changed. And so what I've noticed with uh, with with pastors, and it's it seems to be in either one ditch or the other, is that there's a sacrifice of ministry on the altar of or family on the altar of ministry, which is why we get so many preachers' kids and those sorts of things. And then the other side of that is. Is being so invested in family and 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 not knowing how to to do this thing of I mean, we're called to work hard and pastors are that's what we're called to do is to, to I mean six days you shall work and yep. and that's a, a part of our call is to you know we don't get into this thing even though the work is unique and different. Well, I'm rambling. So, how did you yeah. over your the course of your life and ministry as you're looking back? How did you make a pri- make those priorities you know correct biblically and how did you flesh that out in your family?
1: yeah, well, Jared, I wish I could tell you that, <laughs> man, I did it just right, and here's what you ought to do but i I cannot say that. I hmm. made lots of mistakes, that I just grieve over, but I'm grateful for God's grace and kindness in and through them. One of the best things that happened to, to me was early in my ministry and in my marriage. I was in the i pastored this little church in college station for two years, okay, got married. My wife and I, uh, I was in seminary at that time, went to Southwestern. She was at nursing school at University of Texas at Arlington. And, and we lived in Fort Worth in seminary housing. And I began uh, serving as a minister of single adults, assistant pastor at a larger church in Dallas. And while I was there, I guess uh, we had had one child, and the second one was on the way. The senior pastor left and the interim pastor who came in was a retired pastor who was doing interim work in his retirement years. And he had a reputation for kind of being like a fixer of churches. And uh, so he came in just like his first week there, came into my office, sat down across the desk from me, and I just began to ask him about his life and ministry. And he's at his probably mid-70s at this point. And he told me about the three churches that he had served over the course of his ministry. All of them had been very troubled, large churches, influential churches. But he had gone in and by God's grace had seen some good things happen, some turnaround in all three of them. And as we're talking about it, he said, but it came at a high price. Hmm. And he began to talk about his family. He just broke down weeping. Wow. And about his three children who just walked away from the Lord, the church, wanted nothing to do with Christianity. And I'm sitting there, you know, I'm in, I don't know what I am, 25 or 6, something like that. And I'm looking at this guy, 50 years older than me, and he's weeping as he's reflecting on his life and ministry. So he walked out, and I just lost it and begged God to please don't let me come to that point in my Mm -hmm. life and have that regret. Help me. And um, so I read everything I could. I talked to people. And God gave me some principles I say God gave them to me I think they're from the Bible but it's, it's not like any flash of revelation but I, I think God led me through counsel and reading study and understanding the word to some principles that have helped me okay and I wish I could tell you I've implemented them all the time just right I have it but I do believe in them and they've stood the test of time at least in my thinking and, and they are this that I need to serve the Lord and I need to be what I'm called to be in order of priority
0: Okay. And,
1: and maintaining priorities is one of the greatest challenges that, that I've had over the course of my life. And certainly as it relates to pastoral ministry, that's, you know continues to be true. But I ask myself this, and I'll stop and do this pretty regularly now, still late in life, is what does God call me to be? Well, first and foremost, he's called me to be a Christian.
0: Mm.
1: So before anything else, I need to be devoted to him. That means that's I good. need to love him above my wife. So, secondly, he's called me to be a husband, mm-hmm. and you know I, I can be a faithful Christian and not be a husband to Donna, because she could die, mm-hmm. and I, I'd still be a Christian. But I cannot be a faithful husband to Donna if I'm not being a faithful Christian. Yeah. And so I, I must pursue Christ above Donna, and then after being a husband, God's made me a dad. And I cannot be a faithful father if I'm not being a faithful husband mm-hmm. and a faithful Christian. And so I've got to love my children third. And then after that, I'm called to be a pastor. So I can't serve this church the way it should be served if I'm not serving my children, loving them and my wife, loving her, and seeking Christ foremost. And then after that, you know, I do founders and other things, but those all come after those four primary priorities. And what's helped me is to realize that when I am loving my wife well and, and pursuing her and serving her as I ought to be, I'm actually serving my children mm. and I'm actually serving the church because the church benefits from
0: having a pastoral family that's not chaotic. That's so good. That, that it's somewhat
1: ordered. But sometimes, you know it, you've already felt it, man. It feels, there are tensions. and You feel like, gosh, I am sacrificing my family on the altar of ministry or I am sacrificing the ministry on the altar of the family. And you, you got to avoid both. And the way to do that for me has been keep those priorities clear and realize that the best thing that I can do for my children is love their mother well.
0: That's so the best good. thing I can do for my wife is love
1: Jesus well. The best thing I can do for the church is love my children, my wife, and the Lord well. Mm. And when you got the right man in the right church ministry slot, then having these priorities and putting them to say, go, go to a man, go after them. You'll never slight the church by keeping those priorities right. The church will be better served than if you make it a priority. So those have been the principles that, that I've come back to time and again. Mm-hmm. And again, I haven't done it just right. You know, don't hear me saying that. But those have been reorienting principles for me whenever I've kind of lost
0: my way. So Dr. Asker, you're, t- you're telling me that you don't just finally arrive at, at doing all these things. <laughs> Well, and that's why I had you on here. I mean, is you know, to, <laughs> you know, let me tell you this: if if you finally
1: arrive, it's long after sixty two. Okay, <laughs>
0: you know I love hearing that because when I work with pastors and pastoral teams, and um, when, one of the things I work through that the question is who is a pastor. I mean, this is identity and Christian husband, father. I, I put it's. I'm loving this, and I wrote it all down, and I, I just it's so helpful because I've been talking about these these five callings that I walk in. I actually put friend in there as well. About about learning to be a friend, uh, and part of my callings as a man before even being a pastor is learning to befriend people. And but these yeah. that that that's so huge of thinking. Okay, what has God called me to be before I'm a pastor? And if yeah. my fundamental identity is is pastor before anything else, things get out of whack pretty quick. Oh yeah, um, without a doubt, that is just so wise. Well, I, okay, that's good. So why is it? Then that, uh, and maybe it's because these are, these priorities are out of whack, but I've kind of had these, this criteria of, of finishing well, if I can, if I can get to formal retirement age and I know there's no quote unquote retirement, we're going to keep work working till we die, but formal retirement age, let's just say 65 yeah. and I'll be thrilled if I still know how much I'm loved by the Lord and if I'm still loving him, uh, if I and me and my wife have a great relationship, if she still likes me, I'll be thrilled <laughs> If my kids love and respect me, and if they're walking with Jesus, and I can't determine that clearly, but um, yeah. if they love Jesus, and I'm still making disciples, and uh, still being discipled and discipling people, I will be absolutely thrilled. And this is anecdotal evidence. I know one pastor in our area that meets that criteria of finishing ministry well, just one. Why do so many pastors burn out? Why don't Why don't pastors In the large part, why do so few finish well? Yeah, well,
1: that's a great question, and I don't have a definitive answer to it, except I can tell you this: that it's um, you know, you strike the shepherd, and the sheep will scatter. And there is a large target on the back of every pastor, and we have enemies who hate our Lord, who hate the Lord's people, and who hate those who are responsible for shepherding. Caring for the Lord's people, and so I do think that pastors have um, not only a greater responsibility and accountability to the Lord, but they have greater exposure in spiritual warfare. Mm. And um, you know, if the devil takes out a leader, takes out a. a But right. This guy was really just God had gifted him wonderfully well and he was he was on a pathway of pursuing that. And the Lord called him to go overseas. So we sent him and his family over to a Muslim country and, and an unreached people group and you know, they just gave their lives there to, to plant a church first church really among the Tajik people in modern times and so it was it was awesome. But he led the he led the deacons and elders to give me a sabbatical. Okay. Uh,
0: Now, did your wife, Dr. Askell, did your wife know that you had this all this time you could have taken off, that you didn't yes, take off? Did, yeah, you know? okay. <laughs> I did. Mean, okay. But,
1: you know, I was just too godly to take that time.
0: <laughs> right. The serving the Lord, the serving the God Lord, God that's right. To a screechy
1: halt. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so the kids did it again. I get up, I go, and they're kicking the wall again. So I just grabbed them, you know, I said, y'all come with me. There's four or five of them. And I marched them out to the foyer area, and, and there's a bunch of moms, including my wife, standing there. And I said, ladies, your your children are disturbing the meeting that I'm in, and I've tried to correct them. They won't be corrected, so uh, please take care of them. And in my mind, you know, it's normal conversation. I do that with kids. I treat everybody's kids like my own, and, you know, don't expect anybody to treat my kids any differently. So I went back to the meeting, and then about an hour later, I, I drive home. My wife meets me at the door, and I know something's wrong, but I don't have a clue what it is. And she looks at me, and she says, Um, uh, said, you can schedule, this, this is a quote, this is indelibly burned on my mind.
0: <laughs> it's never going away. <laughs> yeah.
1: She said, you can schedule a vacation or I'm going to schedule a lobotomy for
0: you. <laughs> said, One of the two is going to happen. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, you know, my
1: wife's a nurse. So I, it took her about two hours to convince me that what I had done with those mothers was wrong. Hmm. I just didn't see it. I was just so over the top. And these, she said, those moms, their jaws dropped to the ground. Well, wow. And nobody said a word, and they walked out. And So after two hours, I finally was believing her, and I had to go back and repent to those moms. But I scheduled uh, a, a month off and met with the elders. They were agreeable. So as soon as we could, we got out of there for a month. And I, did, I had no idea how uptight and wound up I was. Wow. And uh, that that was kind of the beginning of getting some reset uh, balance in my schedule hmm. that has served me so well since then. So I yeah I don't know that I've ever taken the whole time every year off, but you know there have been times
0: I've been gone for six and seven weeks, and it's been great. Yeah, I love that. I think that's uh, that's a good word for us to consider. Many many of the pastors that are listening won't have the option even of of doing that, but right regularly getting some time for not just relief, but just for some restoration, I think, is just so crucial. And Um, I'll tell you what, I've
1: I've done this for a lot of churches. I'm happy to speak to your deacons or elders or committee or whoever about the benefit, the wisdom of this.
0: hmm. Because
1: giving me that time away has served this congregation well. And it's helped helped me for the long term, you know, to, to play the long game. I couldn't have done it. I don't think I could have, I don't know. God knows. But it has been a means whereby I have been able to maintain the the pattern and rhythm of
0: ministry here mm. of going on, what is it, 33 years now. That's great. That's great. Okay, so you're in it 33 years now, same church. Uh, I'm going to use a broad stroke here. Don't be offended. Uh, boomer pastors and millennial pastors are notoriously... Not getting along, or haven't given, haven't gotten along very well uh, in broad strokes. I think that's why there's been so, who, so many. Who did you say millennial pastors? Uh, and who? Millennial pastors and boomer pastors, baby Boomers, boomer okay. pastors. That's me. Got gotcha. you. Right, you. So I'm going to highlight your age here for a little bit, but uh, get off the grass. Man. Okay, there we go. Yeah, there we go. Uh, don't ride that skateboard. Um, so millennial pastor or, or boomer pastors. What I've noticed. And for all the issues that my generation, I'm 35, my generation has, and we have many of them, one of the things I've seen with boomer, baby boomer pastors is this deeply ingrained identity, I am a pastor, kind of what we were talking about before. So you're coming up on formal retirement age. You know, are, How are you doing with that? Are you going to be okay not being a pastor? And then for those that are listening that maybe are in their 50s and getting into their 60s, maybe they don't have a transition plan yet. They don't know what they're going to do. Maybe they're living in a parsonage and have to hold on to a position because they don't have money for a home or mortgage. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, are you going to be okay not being a pastor? This is a have got like five questions in one here. Do you have a transition plan, and how's that going?
1: Yeah. Well, I'll tell you one thing that I would encourage every pastor to do better than I've done. I, they should plan for uh, not being a pastor financially, you know, and I just, I've just i been unwise, not as wise as I should have been, and God's fine for so faithful and we're fine. But we don't face the stress that some pastors face, which you just described. Oh, no, I can't afford to not be a pastor. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm quite confident that God can take care of us without me being a pastor and receiving the the salary that I receive as a pastor. But I do think that needs to be more carefully planned than what I did. I, I thought it was carnal, you know, to think like that and uh it just was foolish it wasn't carnal it was foolish so i'd encourage younger pastors you you guys your age plan for it
0: okay so start doing now
1: taking advantage of whatever iras or annuities that you can participate in so that you're not going to be tempted to be a, a boat anchor around the church when you should step aside okay so having said that uh you know We've talked about trying to come up with a formal transition plan. We've seen several transition plans from churches that uh, looked great on paper that blew up uh, in the process. In fact, there's a book that I got for all of our elders years ago called Next, and it's written by I think the Leadership uh, Journal or something like that. Okay. And it highlighted like six or seven churches. One of them is here in our community, and it you know you read it, it's just oh man, this is incredible, it's scripted. Well. Um, the book was published, and within a year, we read it that first year, that, that local church in our area blew up wow. through the transition. And wow. there's two others that we know about in that situation. So all that's to say that, you know, no plan's going to be foolproof, and you're dependent on the grace of God and His Spirit and His Word. So you got to you can't put your confidence <laughs> in your skill to plan. That's mm. my that's what I've taken away from that. Okay. Having said that, our elders have for the last three, four years, at least once a year, had a formal conversation about transitioning, that I'm someday I'm not gonna be the senior pastor here. Uh, that may be tomorrow, because I could drop dead. Uh, that may be next year, five years, we don't know. But I'm, I wanna hold it with an open hand. And what I have uh, tried to insist upon with the elders Every year is look. You, I'm counting on you guys, and you cannot let me uh, be a drag on this church. Mm. So, at the point that it need, there needs to be movement. You got to say it. I'm with you on it. I want the best for this congregation. So, even if it's hard to hear, I want you to to know that I'm I'm basically arguing for you to do that right now.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, we do think that we know what God's going to do. We, we have plans. We, we have hopes of what God's going to do here in transition. It looks like everything's in place. And uh, nothing would delight me more if it works exactly that way. Uh, I've served with a pastor, Jared Longshore as an associate. About your age, uh, sharp as a tack, better preacher than I am, gifted pastor, uh, clear thinker, and know i could joyfully sit under his ministry without any qualms at all so Mm. uh, obviously it hasn't happened so i may sing a different tune when it comes but as i'm thinking about it and theoretically as we have prayed about it and i've talked to elders over the last several two, two three years at least and it's a we've talked to the congregation about it so we don't have anything formal that we're announcing to you but we just want you to know this is a conversation. It's gonna happen one way or the other. Mm-hmm. And so we might as well be thinking about it, praying about it, talking about it, and we're trying to, to establish some principles that will guide us to know when and to, to what to do in the in the wake of it. So with that, you know, I'm willing to move away from here. That's kind of a sad thought to me. Mm. And yet, if that's best for the church, I'll do it, because yeah. I certainly don't want to hinder uh, ongoing ministry we're hoping that won't be necessary and it doesn't seem like it right now it doesn't feel like that's going to be a necessary move but you know we'll we'll do that cuz i in my thinking the 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 priority is the church yeah. the church needs to be served well
0: that's good that's all so helpful i think that's really wise that you guys have been thinking through that for years and i'm trying to now you know implement some of what you're saying trying to think because our church is going to transition when I'm in my 50s. The next generation, the next biggest generation in our church are going to be in their 20s. So the key for me for transition for our church to be a multi-generational church is going to have to be me being somewhat in transition in my 50s. And and so my sons and their age group will be in their mid-20s. And, and so just trying to be wise about thinking into the future rather than getting there and being shocked. Like, oh my goodness, yeah. I'm here and I'm not prepared for anything. Uh, right, <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's wise. That's good. But it comes quick. I mean, I I I sound you know more and more like my my father and mother and my grandparents. You know, with each passing year, about how fast the time moves, and both in our family and in our church, it's just pretty wild how things move. But yeah. all right, so let's talk about a couple hot button button issues and end with the gospel. How about that? That sounds good. All right, uh, it seems to me that the SBC of which we are a part is radically embarrassed about our complementarianism. Is that true? And if so, why?
1: <laughs> well, it seems to me more and more want to be known as complementarian without being complementarian. Okay. <laughs> you know, they don't want to give up the word, uh, but they're giving up the essence. And so we're now having new categories like broad complementarianism right. or narrow complementarianism. And, I mean, this is, I don't know when you're going to air this, but we're talking this the week before Mother's Day. Mm-hmm. And it happened just a week or so ago on social media that we had Beth Moore and some other women announce that they were going to be preaching on Mother's Day in their churches.
0: I saw that. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah.
1: So, you know, um, I mean, they're not embarrassed by this. and They they joked about it, so they weren't being in your face so much. But it is obviously something they have no qualms with. J.D. Greer, our president, uh, he, along with his elders, I think he's the main writer from what I remember, is writing a position paper, he's written a position paper. Saying that women can preach on Sunday morning in, in worship services.
0: Wow, uh, if, I did not know that. If they that. don't
1: do it in an elder-like way, I think so the language is kind of funny to me. But anyway, he's—you know—he's trying to walk a line. I appreciate the fact he doesn't want to give up complementarianism, at least all of it. But um, we, I, we were our pastors are sitting around having lunch today, and one of them asked, "When was the last time a Southern Baptist pastor?" advocating women, women preaching on Sunday morning from the pulpit at worship service. And I said, never. I don't think it's ever happened. If it has it, I don't know when. And so it's a new day, and, you know, J.D.'s a good guy. I'm not trying to throw him under the bus. These are public things he said. So, yeah, I think we have a problem with it because I I think there's a growing embarrassment that is unspoken about some of the things the Bible actually says.
0: Boom. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that is you're hitting the nail on the head uh, of verses that there's just an embarrassment about. Yeah. Um, that's so wise. So wise. I'm I'm hopeful that things we can see a uh, somewhat of a change and I think the more and more we want to appear um, to be in agreement with culture uh, by our actions, the more and more embarrassed we're going to get. Um, yeah. And uh, Okay, another question, can the woke and the non-woke work together, or right now is the chasm grown so far uh, with the statement on social justice that you were a part of working on and the gospel and kind of the Eric Mason woke church side of things? I mean, can these two groups, how can we, which we're all one in Christ, I mean, like, I mean for goodness sake we're we're talking about brothers in the lord and brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah. So is there how do we work together? Like what's I mean how, how do how do we bridge this gap that that's there?
1: It's a challenge. Uh, it's one of the most uh, heartbreaking things that I've ever lived through. Mm. And uh, if you had told me 5 years ago that this is something that I would be addressing thinking about having to confront I would have just you know I would have argued with you I didn't see it coming couldn't have imagined it and yet here we are and it is grievous um, it's cost me friendships well it, uh, you know brothers that I love respect who told me they think I've lost my mind and question you know why would I throw away my lifetime of ministry in contending for the doctrines of grace over uh, something that now has Put me in the uh, same side of the fence with racists and misogynists and homophobes. <laughs> yeah, it's I just it's like the twilight zone to me.
0: It seems like it. Uh, it
1: does, and I I'm heartbroken. I mean,
0: yeah. I'm just deeply, deeply heartbroken. So that's the question: Can we work together or not? Uh, yeah. There are some
1: positions being advocated that if those positions are to be allowed, no, I cannot work with people who advocate those positions. And, you know, that's what, what does that mean? I don't know exactly what all that means. Yeah. But I can tell you this I'm not going where they're going.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm just not going to do it. And I want to love and be kind. I want to be
1: taught and learn. I want to see my blind spots. People help me. But thus far, man, everybody I've asked, help me. Uh, I've not, maybe it's my hard-headedness, but I've not been helped yeah. yet, and I'm willing to be helped. I'm willing to have conversations. I've had multiple private conversations. You know, people see the stuff that goes on online and the articles back and forth and the social media stuff, but there have been many uh, conversations, and there are more coming mm. that I'm, I'm a part of, I know others are a part of, and I,
0: you know, I'm, I hate it. I mean, yeah. I hate the thought
1: of there being division, but there's already been some division, and it sure looks like more's coming.
0: Well, I tell you, no that. The, the work that you have done over the last 30 years with founders and just the doctrines of grace and, and shining a spotlight on the scriptures about the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus, uh, am I mistaken here? Or when the Bible speaks about racial reconciliation, doesn't it primarily first, even before the image of God, doesn't it go to the cross? I mean, don't we, don't we talk about the cross of Christ bringing us together and breaking down the dividing wall of hostility? And, and, and it seems to me that this work that you've been doing for all these years, by the grace of God, what's been happening through founders, I mean, if you're passionate about the gospel, you're going to be passionate about these things, for goodness sake. Yeah. Because there shouldn't be this dividing wall. Right. And uh, that's what's so confusing, I think, for so many. And, and, well, uh
1: you're right. Yeah, that's a, You're saying it exactly the way that I'm seeing it. And uh, so to, to people who have said to me, you know, why, why would you do this? I, it's, I haven't changed, you know. And one guy said to me, he's a denominational leader, executive, he said to me, uh, he said, you know, Tom, uh, if somebody told you 30 years ago what was going to happen in Dallas last summer at the SBC, that those things were gonna happen. He said, You won. You won, man. If Calvinists was elected president and all this happened. and you won. So if they had told you thirty years ago it was gonna happen, I said you would have been ecstatic, wouldn't you? And I said, No, I wouldn't have been. Not if I knew then what I know now. Well wow. I said, I'm I'm not about Calvinism, man. Mm. I've never wanted to just
0: galvanize the SBC. That's I right. go. <laughs> I want to see the gospel get the the priority that it deserves.
1: I want to Christ have the preeminence that he deserves. And if you, I don't see that happening with some of the
0: things that have just taken place and the way they took place. Yeah. And uh, so he was
1: stunned by that. You know, he just didn't get it. But in my mind, I haven't changed directions. I I I think the still the issues are the gospel and local churches. Hmm. I mean, that's what Founders has always been about. And if we don't see some real turning and reorientation of the direction that so much seems to be going now in the name of women's rights, in the name of anti-racism, in the name of caring for uh, homosexuals and those that are caught up in sexual dysphoria, if we don't see a change, then the gospel is going to be an afterthought, and churches are going to be just like the world uh, within an just I don't even think it's going to take a generation. I think we've got maybe 3 4 5 years.
0: Hmm.
1: So in my mind it's the same fight. Yeah. It's just uh, taking on a different form.
0: All right, we've been we're about 44 minutes in. I want to finish and just tell me why the gospel is so precious. The gospel of Jesus, you've given your life, you know, God has done a work in your life, saved you and, and you've been doing this work for so many years. Why is the gospel so precious to you?
1: if you just knew me, uh, I mean, I should have been an axe murderer, you know. I mean, that's if you put me on the sociological, psychological scales, you know. <laughs> I should be a mass murderer in prison, or already executed. Uh, God just rescued me, man. I, I mean, I, this, there's no, there's no explanation as to why Tom Askell should be in his right mind, much less, be a husband, a father, a grandfather, mm. and even know the gospel, much more, even less so preach the gospel. So it's amazing that God would love sinners, and especially they would love me, and He would give up his son for me. I just, I am blown away by that when I stop and think about it. Uh, my, my life was wrecked. <coughs> My life was on a pathway of just disaster, and God came. And said no. I mean, he stopped me, turned me around, and he gave me a son. And um, I I don't know how to get over that. (laughs) I just don't know how to get over the Uh, fact that he would love me like that and that my Lord and Savior would know me, know all about me, know everything about my future, all of my sin, and willingly take my place.
0: Man, that's... (laughs) How do you get past that? For goodness, I mean, for goodness sake, you just can't. It's just so yeah. good. It's yeah. so good. Well, I'm. It's been such a joy to talk to you. I appreciate it so much. I think our listeners would be very, very much encouraged, uh, and they're going to enjoy this episode. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Dr. Askell. I really appreciate it.
1: Well, Jared, thanks for having me, man. Lord bless you and all your good work.
0: Absolutely, and everybody, thanks so much for listening. Until next time.